I kind of went in knowing and hoping to have an impact on my black students. What I didn't realize and I'm realizing is it's also really important for my students who are not black. Like it's important for my white students to learn from and look up to and be challenged by somebody who does not look like them. Welcome to the show. Good is in the details. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dalski. In this episode, I have two of my co-hosts with me, Rudy Salo and Constantine Hatcher. And as promised, this conversation is going to be about part one of The Raffle. It's by Randy Smith. But this conversation is really flowing from discussions about education, about politics, about Los Angeles, about the benefits of discussing sci-fi and dystopian literature. And I have the perfect guest to go over this. He is a former student of mine from Cal Poly. He went into politics, then Teach for America, and he is now an English teacher in LA, Bryce Brady. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, thoughts, comments, you can email goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com or get in touch on Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod. Okay, let's talk books. Well, first of all, we should start with introductions. Okay, so Constantine Hatcher, your Twitter handle? Constantine Hatch. Okay. (laughs) Not creative at all. And Rudy, your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is Solo Rudy. And should you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm not a great poster, but it's uh, RudySS77. All right, so we've got two of our regular co-hosts, and then we're talking with Bryce Brady. Bryce, you don't do social media, do you? I don't. (laughs) that is fine that's amazing (laughs) Bryce apparently according to the last episode that we just released with Matt Ritter you cannot be a stand-up comic because apparently the only way you can be successful as a stand-up comic these days is if you have a social media account right but then when you post on your social media account you'll get canceled Exactly. That's what, well, if you, if I, you I haven't listened, listened to the episode, did you? okay, yeah. that's right. That was my <laughs> argument. I was like, well, why don't, why don't people just not have social media? And he was like, no, 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 no. That doesn't make sense. I was like, okay. <laughs> Look at this. Listening to past episodes, reading the entire four parts of the raffle. Bryce. You're making like, me look bad right now, Bryce. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually making Gwen look bad. I haven't had a lot to do the past <laughs> several months. So it's amazing. Excuse you. All right. Also, Bryce is a former student of mine. I am. Nobody cares. <laughs> so <laughs> apparently you train him well. You take credit for his overachievement. <laughs> well, no, no, you got to give a little bit of that background. What was the class? What year yeah. was it? How did it go? What classes were they? Uh, I said, know? love to hear your perspective of what she's like as a professor. I mean, I, I'm a lover of history, and that means history of personal relationships, too. Yeah, I, Cal Poly Pomona was, you still teach there, Grant, right? Pomona. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah, I actually transferred from the Air Force Academy. I was there for two years and I transferred to Cal Poly. Yeah, and I was eager to just explore what college and life was like outside of the military and the service academy. And I signed up for a philosophy class. I was a political science major. And yeah, just uh, loved the way she challenged me to think about things. And then I also took a... This you did was, the engineering ethics Yeah, too. the en- engineering and ethics class. And I remember because I signed up for it and you didn't know I had signed up for it and you were surprised to see me because I'm not an engineer. Or I wasn't at Cal Poly, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's like three professors that I've kept in touch with from Cal Poly who I consider friends now. And Gwen is one of those three. After Cal Poly, you went up to Sacramento. So what was your work there? I did. So like I said, I was a political science major. I actually interned in D.C. before in Congress 
and worked there for a short time on Capitol Hill. And then I became a fellow and worked in Jerry Brown's administration, just doing what young people, young 20-somethings <laughs> do when they work for politicians. You know, you're doing all the research, you're going to all the meetings and just trying to learn as much as you can. So I didn't do, not, not to say like the work I did wasn't important, but I don't want to make it sound like I'm more important than I was. I was just doing whatever was asked of me and really just learning. When you were in Congress, did you work in any particular field or, or area? Was it like energy or education or infrastructure? I mean, I was really young. I started out as an intern. Yeah, a lot of it was just phone calls. The thing that I became known for in the office was giving tours of the Capitol because I like to think I'm a pretty personable guy. So <laughs> You're the uh, tour guy. Exactly, which was a lot of fun. And then once I got more responsibility, my field was education, which makes sense because now I'm a teacher. Yeah, did that have um, influence on you to go into teaching? Or did you know you wanted to go become a teacher before you even did that? My path to teaching was a little different. So fast forward to when I worked in Sacramento in the Brown administration, one of the things I started to spend a lot of my time doing and was asked to do was uh, working with AmeriCorps grants and how the state administered AmeriCorps grants to different organizations throughout the state. An AmeriCorps program, one of the AmeriCorps programs is Teach for America. And I signed up, I applied and was accepted to TFA after Donald Trump was elected. Um, so it was really, it, it was Donald Trump's election that kind of motivated me to become a teacher, along with just reflection about my own experience, never having somebody that looked like me uh, as a teacher, you know, all, all those types of things. And yeah, so that's how I became a teacher. Gwen knows about this and y'all don't, and the listeners certainly don't know about this, but uh, I'm a black person with a white mother, mm. spent most of my life growing up in spaces that were not black spaces. Mm. Um, and I just didn't want to continue that in my life. So once I finished TFA, I, I moved back to LA where I'm currently teaching. How did you get into teaching English? Did English become your passion or did, I don't know how TFA works. Do they tell you what you're going to teach? And do you like being an English teacher? So your second question first, I love being an English teacher for reasons that I'm still discovering why I love being an English teacher. But my degrees in political science, I always loved reading, but I never thought I'd be an English teacher. And I signed up for TFA, you know, I thought I was going to be like a history teacher teaching. American government, something like that. And there was a need. TFA said, you're going to get your, your English teaching credential. And that's how I became an English teacher. I will say that um, to your, back to your point about wanting to, for kids to be able to see teachers that look like them, especially like black male teachers, is actually so important and critical in terms of student outcomes. And that's one of the biggest holes in our education system. One of the root causes, and obviously not the only, there's numerous of you know social economic problems but big chunk of that is because there's not that black men in the classroom where that black males can look up to and have that especially when you factor in some of the surrounding phenomenon around when we're talking about communities you know of of color that are oppressed where they don't have those opportunities and so having a black male as a role model um, especially in cases where they may not have that role model because of terrible criminal justice system that is pulling men out of the home and putting them in jail. Not having that role model is a definite foundational problem. And so being able to have more black, we talk about, I've talked about that in many different spaces about how important and critical that is to that development. 
And so uh, kudos to you that you're out there really doing it. And so I know that that's, uh, you know, you don't even sometimes don't even realize the impact you have on lives, but I guarantee you, you are impacting lives. If they can come to class and see someone that looks like you as their teacher, that's so meaningful and impactful. I even, even my sons talk about when they have a brother teacher, <laughs> like they get so excited. They're so much more engaged. The dialogue is real and meaningful. And there's just a level of understanding that goes with that, that makes their educational experience so much richer. So um, well, thank I just wanted you. to highlight that point in, in one, in my practical experience, but also in just, I've done some work around education advocacy too, um, and work for an organization called Educators for Excellence. They have a chapter here in LA. I work for that chapter. Um, and just, it really gave me a real good insight into like much more into the teaching profession, how critical it is and some of those issues. So, Well, one anyway. of the, Bryce and I had shared a couple of Malcolm Gladwell's episodes and one of his episodes was on Brown versus Board of Education and that one of the issues was that as a result of that, that all of the teachers, the black teachers were let go, given pink slips because white families in an integrated school did not want their children taught by a black teacher. So you have this entire class that is wiped out. And then Malcolm Gladwell talks about the repercussions of that, that if you have a white student and black student and a white teacher, and let's say they're both excelling, they're exceptional, they're less likely to be noticed by Mm -hmm. a white teacher than by a black teacher. And they're going to be punished much more strictly. Yeah. 100%. I mean, we have, before we started recording, we spoke about the episode on blackness that Constantine and Gwen that y'all recorded back in February. And one of the things you spoke about, Constantine, was just about in your just development as a human being and in your professional development, how learning how to like not hide your blackness is something that you had to be intentional about doing. And that's something that in my role as an educator, I'm very intentional of not Mm -hmm. like, yes, I'm a black man. And that's obvious when I walk into a space, but also bringing my blackness into everything I teach, right? And so like Gwen, to your point about the negative impact of Brown v. Board of Education and putting, assuming that white teachers were the best teachers and putting them into all the classrooms with integrated schools. One of the things is, and I'm speaking personally from my experience as a student who only had white teachers, mm-hmm. um, is the comfort of my white peers, my white classmates was prioritized over my pain as a black person, right? So like we could be reading To Kill a Mockingbird or <laughs> any American literature. Take your pick. None of which was written by black people, by the way. No. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, like the N-word is said or, or something's not understood or To Kill a Mockingbird is a great example. None of the black characters have voices. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was never acknowledged. Or if I was expressing discomfort or pain or calling something out and making my white classmates uncomfortable, my teachers would often or always <laughs> focus on comforting my white students instead of like understanding and acknowledging the pain. So, I mean, that's something that I'm really intentional about. And then to, just to follow up real quick on what you were saying, one thing that I noticed about, I mean, just in the, in the time I've been a teacher, I kind of went in knowing and hoping to have an impact on my black students. What I didn't realize and I'm realizing is it's also really important for my students who are not black it's important for my white students to learn from and look up to and be challenged by somebody who does not look like them. 100%. Because that has, that hopefully will have positive consequences Mm -hmm. down the road. Helps to bring that layer of understanding and just understanding 
blackness is not just this caricature that they see on a rap video or demonized, you know, the next victim by police violence, but an actual human being just like them, the teacher, doctor, a lawyer, all the things that we are, that we right. often, people try to don't remember that we are because they don't have that experience of being around black folks. What is a piece of literature that you have brought into the classroom that might not be like, <laughs> um, what is it? I'm curious, what's something, because that's, that's one of the ways also I've, for example, with teaching the engineering ethics, there's been stuff on ethical theory does not actually create ethical human beings. Like if you want to accomplish that, and that one of the best ways is through literature, that that increases empathy, points of view, understanding. So um, I'm curious, what literature are you bringing into your English class? The essential question for my class for eighth grade English is what do we mean when we say we the people? Um, mm. and, we, and we just spend the entire year exploring literature that asks that question. Because what I pose to my students, like I open up with, it's not original anymore, but it was original when I started doing it, or maybe not, but I open up with uh, that poem, I Too, mm. uh, and by Langston Hughes, right? I am the darker brother. And then, mm -hmm. but I won't recite the whole poem, but he ends with saying, I too am America, right? Like tomorrow mm -hmm. I'll be at the table when company comes and nobody will dare say to me, go eat in the kitchen then. And what I tell my students is so much of American literature are American citizens who weren't initially considered in that we when the preamble was written. And it's them telling their stories and demanding that their humanity be acknowledged and saying that, you know, I too am America. How that looks functionally in terms of what we study. For example, when I teach To Kill a Mockingbird, I couple that with, so we do our To Kill a Mockingbird unit. And then once we finish that, then we study Kendrick Lamar's album, To Pimp a Butterfly, mm. as if it were a book, right? So like, if it's a sin to kill a mockingbird, then what do we think about Uncle Sam's propensity to pimp a butterfly? And you know, what would happen if like Tom Robinson's grandchildren, if they got to tell their stories in a way that Tom Robinson never did, you know, what might that look like? So that's an example of how I add black voices to the canon. It's also, I mean, Rudy, I know, I know you care a lot about like the city of Los Angeles, right? And I do, very much so. Teaching in Los Angeles, I think it's valuable to so much of Kendrick Lamar, what he talks about in his music. It's not just what it means to be black in America, but what it means to be a black Angelino. You know what I mean? And, it's it's critical it, it's a it's a los angeles is its own world uh and i know people throughout the country hate that we think we're that special and we think we're so important but guess what we are yes i've been telling people this for years i mean this, we, this is where this is where media is this is where defense has been this is where some some of the leading institutions in the entire country are this is where some of the best sports is this is where some of the best thinkers are in Sorry, fact, New Yorkers. It, in fact, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the raffle, which I know we'll talk about in a second, is because one of the underlying premises is if you read the postscript to that book, what the author, Randy Smith, says is, this is my ode to Los Angeles. And basically what I was trying to explain to the world is if Los Angeles ever went off of the map, off of existence, and everything got shut down, I think that the world will become this extremely dark, scary place. Lo and behold, the world is becoming this dark and scary place without the fall of Los Angeles. So I, I can only imagine how much darker the world would be should we ever lose Los Angeles. But that was one of the underlying premises of the book. Los Angeles is such a weird conundrum in that you have the best and the worst in the same space. 
You know, you have this incredible racial tension that is glossed over by the glitz and glamour of Hollywood that people don't even realize, people that aren't from here, that come here, don't even really know just how the city, how segregated and how the issues and troubles of the city. They don't know until they get here and they think, oh, and they, they just stay in like, you know, Hollywood and, you know, Silver Lake and Santa Monica. Like, oh, it's great. Oh. And then they, once they go south of the 10 or south of the 105, around the 105, they're like, oh, this is, other, this is also LA, this third world country that people are living in. In part one of the raffle, it's trying to expose the realities of LA about actually how segregated it is. Mm-hmm. Why do we have all these communities of African-Americans living here? Why do we have these Asian-Americans here? Why do we have the Latinos here? And why do we have the whites all around here? Los Angeles is still segregated. There's, it's a lot more intermixed than it used to be, I suppose, but it's still very, very, very segregated in a lot of ways. Put aside the Hollywood glitz and glam that tried to pull the shade over everybody, there are still problems in LA. That said, I'm still passionate about LA, I love it. You know, my parents were immigrants. My dad had nothing, didn't speak English when he came here. I started working in a mail room and wound up working at the same corporation 52 years later as the CEO of a hospital. Uh, my uncles all came here, they all married. They all intermixed. They married Koreans, they married Mexicans, they married Chinese Hawaiians. And my whole family is just this big racial mix. It's like a big melting pot. And I love it. And that's because of LA, because when they moved to downtown and when the immigration opened up in the 60s, all these people throughout the world met each other and they, you know, made love and had babies and, and created a bunch of sallows to kind of take over the world. And, and that's because of LA. That's a great part of LA. And it's still got its problems, but I still think it's the most important city in the world. Well, moving on to the raffle, I'm going to ask our English teacher, Bryce, here. What do you think is the value of dystopian fiction just in general? Like I think of, I think of 1984, The Handmaid's Tale, Brave The world. Giver, Brave New World. Yeah. What in your mind is one of the values of dystopian fiction? Like, Why do we teach it? So there's dystopian fiction. I want to take a step back first and just say science fiction. Like I remember when I was a student in your class, you talked about Frankenstein and just the importance of the first work of science fiction was a woman. She's using the story that she's writing to talk about her experience of being a woman in a society that doesn't value women. Mm. Um, Yet you have to think about that as you're reading the book to really understand what she's saying. So as far as dystopian fiction goes, I think it's a way for the value is it gives us as the reader a way to think about the ills of society but it gives us some distance. We don't get too attached. We don't get too scared. We don't get too defensive. If you can think about a future where all of these things are played out to their logical conclusion, all these injustices that currently exist in our society, if you play that out to its logical conclusion, what would society look like, right? And then once you really think about it, you're like, oh, but this is already happening. I think a great example, it's in the title, is the the Netflix series, Black Mirror. Dystopian fiction, it just like, it holds up the worst it shows the worst reflection of our of our true selves as a society. And that's what dystopian fiction as its best does. And I just have to name, like, the fact that Black is always associated with bad is a problem, even coming from the mouth of <laughs> a Black teacher. Nonetheless, my point holds true. <laughs> What's interesting with Black Mirror, and I don't know if you read, because I know you're, you're, I remember that you knew that I liked Dave Edgar's, but his book, The Circle, um, oh yeah, Black Mirror. Did you read the Circle? I did. I even saw the movie. 
Oh, that was brave. (laughs) But what was interesting about the circle and also with Black Mirror is that they're dystopians, but the difference is that it's not the government taking over. It is technology and a corporation taking over. Yeah. So the circle is a great example of, it gives us some distance. It looks enough like our society. If Google and Facebook and Amazon and Alibaba all merged, you know, then that's what the circle would be. And we could kind of imagine that future, but it gives us distance. But then, I mean, like living through this current pandemic and we see when so many public institutions are failing us, what is society relying on? We're relying on Amazon and we're conducting business through Apple products and we're using Google services. You know what I mean? And it's like when private corporations start performing the role of government, that exporting a lot of power to these corporations and right. the, circle, the circle explores the consequences of that, right? We don't really think about it in the moment because we're getting our jobs done. Like I have to teach my classes. People need to get their toilet paper. But th- then a dystopian novel like The Circle, it's like, well, when we export that power, then what happens once the companies have all that power and yeah. they, they don't have benevolent leaders at the helm? Rudy, I think you would like it. I um, One of the lines that stands out to me is this something that's chanted as privacy is theft. There's a, a young girl that starts out, it follows her working for this corporation called The Circle, which is essentially like Google, Facebook on steroids. And I think one of the creepiest parts about it is that she loses her capacity for thinking because she is constantly tuned into what is happening on social media as her job. And so her own train of thought is uh, dissipates. And at one point she tries to get away to go kayaking and for a weekend. And then she comes back and her boss calls her into the office and says, so I heard you went kayaking. And she said, yes. And he said, you didn't take any photos or post it. Don't you think that that was wrong? there's kayaking groups here. Wouldn't they have liked to see your photos? What if somebody can't go kayaking? You deprived them of the photos of kayaking. And it is so creepy and it just morphs into this and they chant privacy is theft. I would like that. And I, and, I, <laughs> and, and I feel like our society is kind of becoming a little bit like that in some ways. In you know, not to give too much away, I know that this discussion is only supposed to be on part one of the raffle. But later on in the raffle, those big tech companies do get nationalized and do become a part of the new United States. And, and the reality is, it's been hit on the head. Those companies are providing services that people already think are a part that they have a right to. You know, we've talked about on multiple episodes, the fact that people think they have a right to Facebook, that they have a right to Amazon, that they have a right to Netflix, and they have these rights that are associated with these private companies. So mentally, people think that these are already part of their, you know, constitutional rights that they have access to these companies. Are we that much farther away than having the government come in and say, okay, you guys are a part of us now. There's certain people that believe that these corporations are already working with the government in order to follow some of us in order to, for security reasons, for all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's not that different than them just being government owned. Uh, Some people think that. I'm not surprised that it's already part of of literature. It's going to be a continuing theme the lack of privacy, the over-focus on security, right? Where when people just continue to be scared to live, the pendulum is going to swing towards security and that's when society is truly going to change. And I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of people after a result of all of the protests and, and people saying that they don't want police anymore, even though they don't really understand what defunding the police means, that they might want the pendulum to swing even crazier into the super security world. And, you know, 
we're not that far off from having robots and AI following us. Uh, You already see drones being used throughout the world in order to police certain COVID-related populations. The use of drones is just going to continue to happen, although it was predicted in the raffle over four years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we should talk about the raffle. Oh, did you want to say? No, no, I think it's, I think one thing just as interesting is if you look 20 years ago, some of these thoughts of these dystopian narratives are seem so far off, where now some of the causal factors of somehow these declinations of society into these crazy dystopias actually are super close. And you could see how a couple quick twists, when you have a president that's talking about dominating protests, how quickly that can turn into occupation, turn into how about a president that wants to create a supreme order court a court that oversees the supreme court when whenever he doesn't like the laws coming out and that by the way is in part two of the raffle is the disposition of courts and the disposition of lawyers and getting away from our traditional checks and balances of laws and courts we have a president that wants to go down that road I think we should just let him work on Space Force. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's already gone down that road. If if the impeachment hearings, just not allowing evidence, not allowing people to testify, just, you know, brazenly and boldly saying, I'm not going to do it. And then the cowards in his party that started out talking about him like he was a dog. And now all of a sudden, they're nowhere to be found and follow him like blind sheep. I might be a little biased. Yeah, I was gonna... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We're seeing that right now, and, and people don't really realize how quickly in a society, once laws stop applying and people start seeing that, how quickly a society, our social contract is not really, it's really a contract. I'm going to obey these rules and laws. Everyone abides by them, the majority of people. And so when more and more people start seeing that the laws aren't being applied and they don't matter, society can break down really, really quickly. And if you look at history, as you know, many, that's kind of the start of where things fall apart for societies and they fall into revolution, chaos, and I think the the Black community has always known that. But what's happened is that because it's being filmed all the time, people are starting to, people who are not Black are starting to see, oh yeah, there are violations of the rules of society. Um, We can see that happening. And you know, like carrying Skittles or falling asleep in your car should not be death sentences. Mm. All right, let's get to the let's get to the raffle. Let's let's hear what the English teacher's initial thoughts are on this independently published book. Is this story something that you would ever even suggest to your eighth grade students to read? Yes. Again, especially being my eighth grade students live in Los Angeles, so they're Angelinos. And I just think it's really important that we, in the way we think about our role as citizens of the world, that we ground ourselves in like, we have a global obligation, right? We have like an obligation to citizens of the United States, and we have an obligation as members of our community. So one thing about the raffle, for those of you who have not yet read it, it's so clear how much Los Angeles means to the author how much the city and and all the neighborhoods and the streets and the history that created the infrastructure of the city, how much that informs the experiences of people who live in Los Angeles. And it's very easy when you live in LA to only think about your pocket of LA, right? I would suggest that my students read it. There's other reasons too, but number one, because it really gives you perspective on like our city as Angelinos, you know what I mean? And how 
depending upon who you are, how you are racialized, everything that informs your identity, your experience in the city is very different than other people's experience. And that, I mean, just point one, I would, that's, yes, I would absolutely recommend it. I think one of the things about dystopian fictions is that when they put you in this thought experiment of removing something that we may have taken for granted, normally it's a type of freedom. And with the raffle, what is removed is the beauty of a diverse culture. And I made a note that what happens in the raffle is that there is MV16, which is described as an emotional nuclear bomb. And as a result, the people who are infected with this, the infection causes one to only want to be around and feel safe around people who share the ethnic identity, DNA. And that seems absolutely creepy. That's one of the things that makes, I don't know, that makes life in Southern California especially is fun, that I would be denied pretty much everyone around if that were to be the case. And it also allows us to recognize that racial tension, that that is something that is a weakness in our society and to have a terrorist organization use that and amplify it. And then see, here's this thought experiment where you essentially remove any ability to relate, to get to know, to learn from people with different backgrounds. Yeah. No, I, you know, and I thought the interesting thing about that was, is that, there are people in this city right now that are in that situation that are not exposed to other races or definitely not positively exposed to other races in their circle. It really just cemented what's already happening here. And, and the other part of it, and I don't know if I'm giving away too much of, but I guess it's the beginning. So the parts of LA, which are most multicultural are actually the parts that were destroyed. And so you left with, this, you know, you pull out kind of the best of LA and now you're left with all the shit that that has been perpetrated over the last several decades in the city, particularly a lot of due to like, say, racist housing policy and other practice, which is a whole nother conversation. But I thought that the interesting thing was that this is actually, it's not even saying this could happen. Like this shit is already happening. It's just now on hyper level 10. Mm -hmm. One thing that I really, as a thought experiment, that was really cool. And Gwen and Constantine, y'all just helped me complete my thought as I was reading it was this idea just in the story that America tells about itself and in so much of American literature, this idea of like California and West being a place of progress and opportunity and all these things. And that is true until those initial, at the foundation of LA in the raffle, right? When the things that make LA so great, when those are removed, then all of that rot that is the foundation of American society exists and it perpetuates, right? And isn't like, I mean, that's informed by like real history. Mm-hmm. Compton is black. It used to be a white agricultural town and then black mm-hmm. people started moving in the 50s and then white flight happened. And then Gwen, like back, way back to your point about the value of dystopian fiction is taking this idea of biological warfare and just exposing what already exists in like the American psyche and using that for us to destroy ourselves. We're just one level removed from that. And you could take this like LA, which is people from LA don't think that we are like the rest of America. We think we're progressive and you know, we're mm-hmm. multicultural and all that. And it's like, actually, like mm. <laughs> it's just one layer. And then we're just like the rest of American history. We're Ferguson, we're exactly. Brooklyn and the Bronx, we're Philly where Miami and Halea, where it's the same across the country, where the south side of Chicago, 
all these yeah. places. So just kind of flipping that idea of California and LA and what the opportunity that the West represents, flipping that on its head is kind of counter to like everything Steinbeck wrote about or that E.O. Doctoro wrote about in Ragtime when Kohlhaas and Sarah want to go West because that's, you know, they want to drive in their Model T and head West because that's where justice will be had. But it's like, no, now LA is the root of the original sin of this country. It was cool. It got me thinking. The interesting thing about the book is if, if you read the whole thing and if you ever get to the postscript and you read what the, where the author was coming from with respect to the election of Donald Trump in 2016 in the book, he says he thought, <laughs> he thought it would take some, he, he admits his ignorance. He, ad, he admits his, the rose colored glasses over his eyes and says, you know, I thought it would take something as major as the destruction of Southern California, a major terrorist strike, something that tears at the fabric of the United States in order for the United States to elect a person like Donald Trump. And boy, was I wrong. Boy, was I dumb. Because the book was released way before the election of, of Donald Trump and, you know, not giving away too much of it, it. Donald Trump gets elected in this book. But I like the fact that the author admits his ignorance of how bad things were in the rest of the country, of how Donald Trump was able to unite and win and overcome, notwithstanding there was no major terrorist strike in order to get Donald Trump. Like, I don't know if you guys had a reaction to that as well. I think that is interesting, right? And I think it's along the same lines as people that thought going into 2016 election that there's no chance that he could win, right? And there were some people that were more sober, and I was super hopeful, but I also understood from a political standpoint how the pendulum swings and we just had eight years of a first black president and there's a lot of and just knowing america in that way what the ugliness that america i mean i I think i don't think any black folks were disillusioned about the possibility of a donald trump because we've experienced that in our everyday lives we experienced that ugliness of america that most people don't even realize is there they say oh no it's an individual it's a bad actor when people that are experiencing understand it's the systems and so when you have systems of racism, of xenophobia, of, you know, all the different demonizing, scapegoating, one, if you're a student of history, you know, you've seen it before. But two, all that is here in the United States. And so I don't think there was any, for those that were paying attention, I don't think it was surprising at all. Also, similarly, I don't think folk, I called it on election night and I said, you know, his win, if he wins, it's going to be terrible. And we're going to have, it's going to be decades in some places for us to recover like things like the Supreme Court and the judges and things like that, some of these laws. But also, this could be the shake and the slap that America needs to wake it up. You need to expose it. People need to see, people need to do that shock. And Donald Trump is just the guy that is so bombastic. And, you know, it would, like, say, for example, if Mike Pence president, he would be smoother. He would know how to, to navigate the system, to slide the bullshit in without people being able to raise a ruckus. I think Donald Trump and his lack of political acumen and his lack of caring and his, you know, maniacal narcissism, narcissism. Yes. His maniacal narcissism. He just can't do it in a smooth way to like use the same tools that people have been using to perpetuate these types of policies and the systems. And so I kind of figured, I thought that this actually end up, even though it's going to be painful, we could end up in a better place coming out of it, as, as weird as that sounds. From your mouth to God's ears, because if, if you read on in the raffle, it takes a completely different, darker, darker, darker place because of the, because of the over-focus on security and the over-focus on 
the shutting down of the borders, the, the xenophobia, the racism, the, the religious fundamentalism that just comes into play there. I'm hopeful like you, like, hey, this is what we needed. Our country needed this. Even if he gets elected again in 2020, which if you ask me now, he probably will. I know that sounds terrible, but I, that's just kind of the way I feel. Eventually, the bad blood should be gotten out because this just needs to happen. I see what your point is, Constantine. So I remember as a student in your class, Uh-oh. <laughs> reading about Aristotle. Uh-huh. And I know Aristotle is super problematic in a lot of ways. But that idea of like the good life. Mm-hmm. That's good is in the details. It's the title of this mm-hmm. podcast. But so just as individuals who have to engage or who have a responsibility to engage in society, like when we read dystopian fiction like the raffle and when we observe what's happening in the world, what role in your opinion does philosophy play in like kind of reconciling those things into how we exist and how we act on what we see? Yeah, you're right as far as Aristotle's got these problems, but I think one of the things or why I continue to teach him is that I like his notion of the good life. I like the way that the ancient Greeks talk about it, that it is this pursuit of excellence. And if you're living well, you're going in that direction and you are flourishing. So to your point, the reason why Aristotle was interested in what does it mean to live life well was because he was interested in how would you build a good community? So if you want to know how a good politics runs, and a politics is a community of men, and I'm not being gender friendly on purpose, but as a community of men, you have to reverse engineer to see, well, what makes a man good? And then when you can figure that out, then you can bring it into the policy. So for example, since Aristotle tells us that to be a good man is somebody who acts in accordance with excellence, and this means expanding the mind, this means flourishing, this means being virtuous, this means caring about justice, being courageous. And when we see that that is what it means to enjoy your life and to live it well, then we can have laws that allow for that flourishing. And any law that doesn't is a bad, quote unquote, bad law. Anything that would hinder somebody's pursuit of excellence would be a bad law. So if there was a law that was passed that, you know, women can no longer be educated, that would be a bad law. It would hinder my capacity for excellence. So I think that that's, I think that that's how it goes. And again, that's why I really... I appreciate the raffle. I really, I think it's unique in this way in that when we're talking about race, when we're talking about the diversity and we're talking about Los Angeles, the dystopians that I've been raised with, like 1984 or let's say Ayn Rand's Anthem, these address a withdrawal of freedom. The Handmaid's Tale directly relates to women, reducing women to her reproductive status. So that definitely spoke to me. But because a lot of the literature that is taught in elementary school, high school are by white authors, the discussion of this doesn't come up really. It, it, just, it just doesn't. And so the raffle is able to say, hey, here's a, here's a dystopian where the central issue isn't, isn't race or it's not about women, but it's about um, destroying uh, the capacity to relate with the other, that forcing us to see somebody else as object or as a threat. Did yeah. I answer that? Okay. No, ab- absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, to build on it, so just like I see my role as, as an English teacher when I'm teaching literature is, and why I think literature is so valuable and important is to understand what the raffle is saying, like the commentary that it's making about society, and then taking it to the next step. So, like, if this is the flaw of society, 
how can we as citizens, as a part of that society, move forward in a way to make right those wrongs. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's what's so cool about literature is it like it gives space to explore these things and then you can bring in other like you, you can bring in philosophers, you can bring in politics and, and you can apply it to the story in a way that it's not just like, well, this is what's happening in the story and this is what this symbolizes. But it's like, well, if we think about it through what Aristotle described as the good life, here is how that community could, could heal itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and definitely seeing other people as a threat, preoccupying your mind, um, wanting to, you know, objectify somebody else, reduce them to their ethnicity, just uh, is, it doesn't allow for you to live well and also doesn't allow for anyone else to live well. I think this is a side note because we're talking about the main themes of the raffle, but something I really like is the way that the main character, Ramsey, when he's writing to his wife, that there's a real love there and a real sense of loss with his, with his child. I really enjoyed that sentiment. For sure. I think the, the author's note at the end, I think he talks about the kind of the impetus for that was he had a long distance marriage with his wife. Like he was living in LA and she was living in New York. And he just imagined like, what if one day I couldn't travel? The infrastructure that enabled me to travel thousands of miles to see my wife was just cut off and I couldn't see her. M- much you, like, like what's going on today with like exactly. barely any plane flights or anything. It, it, was, it was a virus that kind of shut everything down. Isn't that kind of strange? <laughs> or even like in 2016 with the ban, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that sense of desperation and that sense of love definitely came through in that letter. Even when he was like, he wrote about like the first 90 minutes and he's looking at the clock because he's under a time crunch. And he's like, oh, man, I have two hours to cover nine more years. Like, I got to hurry up. It was great. Yeah. I loved it. That was powerful. Just seeing, having that juxtaposed with what was going on in society around him, right? That love and that still connection. And I think that connection with child, with wife, those, those are very human and universal. Those are those things that no matter who, what, what group you talk to, it may look a little different in how it plays out in their everyday lives, but most people around the world want to be with the person that they love. They want to be with their kids and have the opportunity to raise them and see them grow up and prosper. And, and that, that's the, the human element that combines, that unites us. I like how that was woven through the story of in the time of this extreme xenophobia, right? And, and I thought that was, um, that contrast was nice. It really kind of tie the story to like the human condition, right? Absolutely. I have a question for y'all. LA, correct me if I'm wrong, but my perception is that LA was a a town, a city that was built around the automobile, um, especially like post-World War II. And the protagonist in the raffle, a dream of his was always to travel by bicycle along Route 66. And so just kind of taking that frame of, again, kind of like how it flipped the idea of West being a place of opportunity on its head, taking like the thing about LA, experiencing LA outside of a car, that's something that I noticed. And I just, mm. what, what, did y'all notice that? What were your thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. That first bike route and riding through the different communities of like South LA, and you really see that kind of, that separate, I mean, no better place to see that separation when you cruise down from the beach, down the 91, all the way to the east. You start off in Redondo Beach, Hermosa, Palos, you know, that area. And then you go to the kind of more Asian Torrance in that area. Then you go into some like really oppressed neighborhoods of Black and Latinos as you walk, go through Compton and South LA. 
parts of Carson and, and Long Beach. And then now you're, then you come back out and now you're back in kind of the suburbs where it's like the Asian communities and, you know, back in the white communities as you move into Orange County. It was interesting to take that ride and you see that it kind of really set the tone for that racial separation that then subsequently happens due to the, to the attack. I think the author, I mean, constantly these points are, are excellent, exactly pointing out where the story starts off and then he goes through these neighborhoods. It's pretty clear that he's familiar with how certain neighborhoods that he drives through are still racially homogenous for many historical reasons. Takes himself out of the car because there's an EMP strike and he can't use the car. He initially tried to use the car, but got himself on a bike because on the bicycle, you're exposed, you're naked. The separation, the safety of the automobile gets taken away and you could truly experience the racial disparity, the economic disparity. You can truly experience these things when you're biking through something rather than being protected in a vehicle. I think that was a purposeful thing done by the author to kind of take away that shield. In an automobile, I mean, you can't LA and the automobile, you, you can't separate the two. They're part and parcel. Uh, we talk a lot about that on this show. But stripping away the ability to travel and the safety of the automobile and really getting the protagonist exposed was certainly done purposely in order to add more elements of fear, I think, on top of it. Because a car, you know, a car is, is protective. It's, it can, you can accelerate, you can drive faster, you got your doors, you put locks on it. On a bike, you're really exposed. Yeah, I mean, I just think about like, I mean, I live on the west side, right? If I wanted to drive, like hop in my car and go see Gwen and Constantine, because y'all live like in Sierra Madre, like so the Pasadena area. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would pass through a lot of LA, but I wouldn't see any of it because I'm just in my car on a freeway. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And yeah, I'll just be in my bubble. I'll be listening. I, knowing me, I'd probably be listening to like Will Smith music because that's my guilty pleasure. But uh, <laughs> but and just how different that experience would be if instead of hopping in my car, if I rode my bike or I took the bus and have just having to actually pass through all the communities between where I live and Pasadena. I just yeah, I think if I had to do that on a daily basis, my relationship with the city would be a lot different. 100%. And the vast majority of Angelinos just get around in a car, right? They don't have any constant, they really don't, you know, they go to where their job is and they go home. They don't really understand what's going on in these communities. They have no idea. They probably never have ridden public transportation. They probably never ridden a bus. They probably never rode a bike. They don't really have any idea of the people that they live with. They have no concept of it. So stripping all that out was, I think, was very important that the author did that. I think it was it, for the purpose of the story and the exposition and the exposing of the problems of Los Angeles and, and at that point, you know, societies as a whole, he had to get rid of the car. He had to burst the bubble. He had to destroy that and it forced his protagonist to go through some parts that most people are not familiar with. Yeah. That idea of the bicycle and like you said, bursting out of the car, it was, it was a great storytelling device. There was a purpose behind that book. There was, and I think in today's day and age, in today's in the United States, practically becoming the new United States. I think it's absolutely important to have books out there like the raffle that are forcing us to face some very difficult and complex questions, not just about white versus black. I'm talking about all the societal and racial ills that are stacked upon in Los Angeles, dealing with Asian racial problems, Latino racial problems, economic disparity and housing policies that affect all of our lives uh, is important. 
So when I'm telling my students to pick it up, where can they find it? I mean, it's it's available on Amazon. It's on Amazon Kindle for like $6.99. There's a published book. I know the author is working on a redone version of the book. He wasn't too happy with, with the editor that he used before, and, and he's picked up on a couple of mistakes that are getting fixed. I also know that the author is working on a podcast of the continuation of the story. So he's no longer going to be writing the story. It's going to be a fictional podcast of the continuing journeys of Ramsey, the protagonist. But uh, they can get it on oh, Amazon. That's really cool. Yeah, that it is, is cool. Oh. Well, Bryce, thank you so much. Thank this you. Was it was great. Yeah, it was man, a lot you. of fun to nerd out with y'all. This is what I did. <laughs> yeah, that was good we, stuff. It's, it's we nice to do it with nerds. adults and not 14-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> well, for sure. Three adults and me and Zadie. I mean, come yeah. on. Let's, let's, let's be honest. Two, two adults and me and Zadie. Yeah, there you go. Well, thank you for having me, y'all. It was, it was a pleasure. Definitely have to do it again. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we'll do another book club. We'll do another book. I like it. I like that. I like these we'll let Bryce pick the book next time. Pick it and, and it. tell me and I'll read it. I'd love to do it. I love Sounds it. Good. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Bryce, for coming on the show. It was really such a great conversation. Thank you to my co-hosts. And if you do check out the raffle, you know, get in touch with the podcast. We would love to hear from you. And in fact... If you're listening to the podcast, take a screenshot of your favorite episode or this episode and tag us in it on Instagram. All right. And remember, if you leave a review, tell Rudy he's funny. Now stay safe, wash your hands, and stop hoarding the toilet paper. Bye. Did you get a haircut? No, I did not. You look like you cleaned up. What did you do? No, I I took a shower. (laughs) I did.